Thanks for tuning in to Best Show Ever, a podcast presented by The Angler. In this week's episode, we'll discuss immediate and long-term issues being addressed by leaders in the museum world. Then we'll talk with multimedia artist and professor TJ Ditto Norris and hear from Corey Kent on his best show ever. But first, here's a word from our sponsors. Toyota of Iowa City has been owned and directly managed by the Drusicki family since 1981. What makes Toyota of Iowa City unique is their long-standing reputation for customer satisfaction in both sales and service, transparency, and supporting our community, including the Englert Theater. Please visit their website at toyotaiowacity.com to make service appointments, review inventory, or check out current factory incentives. Or find them on Highway 1 West. In today's arts news, we're focused on art museums and how calls for justice and reform and effects of the pandemic are changing the landscape and arts museums around the world. For that conversation, I'll pass it on to Engler Executive Director Andre Perry. We're here with Lauren Lessing from the University of Iowa's Stanley Museum of Art. Lauren, we are so excited to have you here, an arts leader in our community, just to spend a minute with us on Best Show Ever, just to talk about art, art, and art. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So um, this is an interesting time for, for everyone, and in particular for those in the arts and culture sectors. And uh, of course, in particular for museums, as we continue to navigate the pandemic, the current pandemic and the post-pandemic world, whatever that looks like. And on top of that, you're in the midst of building the new museum for the University of Iowa and determining how it's going to intersect and interact with the community, campus, beyond campus, this whole state of Iowa, the whole country and the world. So how how do you see the Stanley Museum being a leader? for this campus and for this community and for the whole field as you look forward past the pandemic and to those opening days? Yeah, great questions. Um, You know, I think that uh, one of the things that really excited me about the design of the new building is that it's really designed as a social space. So I have faith that museums will be social spaces again. You know, we'll weather this moment And we'll come back to a place where we can gather together as a community and in groups in museums, because that's so important to experiencing art. You know, I don't want to, um, you know, denigrate the experience of wandering alone through museums, because I've had many wonderful moments like that. But I just think that being able to use what you see in an art museum as as a catalyst for conversation uh, is so important that um, I just can't imagine uh, the world of museums without that opportunity to engage with other people in that space. So, so I have faith that you know, in a year or maybe two years, if we're unlucky, you know, museums will once again um, be bustling social spaces. And you know, the challenge of this moment—it's good to hear some positivity in, the, in these current times. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we'll get through this. Um, this is not the first pandemic that has hit, uh, you know, the world, uh, you know, and has overlapped with museums. And so, we've gotten through um, difficult times like this in the past, and we'll get through this. But of course, COVID is only one of our challenges right now, and maybe it's not 
even the most important one. You know, I think we face bigger challenges. We really wrestle with um, the challenges this moment is posing to us to be just institutions in relation to our world and to really wrestle with the history of colonialism that informs uh, all art museums. I mean, all museums are really children of the Enlightenment. You know, the, this period in the 17th century through the 19th century, really, um, during which most museums were built. Um, and of course, that was also the great period of colonial expansion when European nations were, um, you know, ex you know, exerting. Uh, control over much of the world. And so museums were designed to be institutions where uh, a voice of authority would speak down to audiences. They were designed to be repositories for treasures that were brought into uh, these institutions through force often. And, um, you know, in the last 50 years, this has all begun to change. In the last 20 years, even, um, museums have really been wrestling with this. How do you turn around to face your audience in new ways? How do you present what you have in new ways? And how do you make right the legacy of colonialism? So, you know, these aren't new issues for museums, but obviously with um, the Black Lives Matter protests that, you know, started this summer and with the social justice challenges that we face as a nation, they are... Um, they are really pressing for museums. And I, I would say that, you know, the conversations that I'm part of with my peers, COVID is um, a temporary challenge. You know, our, our commitment to social justice and our need to turn ourselves around and reinvent ourselves as institutions, that's a more long-term commitment. And that's going to take a lot longer than recovering from this virus. You are correct that COVID is younger than colonialism <laughs> and that we are still, you know, re recovering from it. Um, you know, I, I was just watching hilariously, if you'll follow me for a minute here, the Sam Jay, the comedian's new stand-up on Netflix. And um, they were talking about going on a trip with their, with their girlfriend to London and they get to London and they're going to go to the museums. And I think they eat like a bunch of mushrooms and they go to the museum yeah. and they're like super high in the museum and they're like having this great time. And then like in the midst of her trip, like it hits her. She's like, oh, like everything here was stolen. Yeah. <laughs> right. And has this like total just like trip of like being like, I can't believe that there's so many spaces that harbor so much stolen culture from other communities from across the world. And so um, I, I actually don't know all the specifics of the history of how art has made it to the Stanley collection over, over these many years, but specifically for the Stanley in Iowa City, in the state of Iowa, what are a few steps you and your team can take to make museums more welcoming to all sorts of people and more interesting to more to all sorts of people as well as to like really straight up reckon with the history of like stolen mm -hmm. art stolen culture and carry trauma over centuries that's a big question so i'm going to break it into parts so like that's probably the british museum um and this the state museums of europe um 
the British Museum is a great example. In many cases, you know, became treasure houses for the spoils of colonialism and conquest. Museums in the United States are a little bit different um, in that, you know, we don't have that direct connection to, um, you know, a colonizing government. Um, the artworks that we have um, from Africa, from other parts of the world, uh, made their way into our collection, you know, in a range of different ways. Well, first of all, they all got to us pretty much, um, most of them, not through purchase, but through gift. Um, and they were acquired by collectors, some of whom were um, African-American uh, in different ways, you know, through the market. Um, it's interesting to think about how artworks have left the African continent in the last 200 years. Most of, most of the artworks that we have um, are, you know, were made within the last two centuries. Really, most of them are probably made within the last 150 years. Um, you know, artworks left Africa through purchase, through trade, through gifts, through um, all kinds of legal and uh, consensual exchanges, and some art left through theft and through looting. And so we have this amazing collection of African art, and it's up to us to determine that everything in the collection that we, that we keep is ours legally and ethically. So that's a big job. And it means doing, our historians call this provenance research, the provenance of an object is, is its entire history of ownership from the time it left the hands of its maker or makers to, um, you know, to the hands of its current owner. And provenance research means digging in archives. It means um, you know, talking to people. It means doing research here in the United States in Europe and on the continent of Africa. Um, so that's a, that's a big project. And like I said earlier, you know, COVID will be, uh, you know, a distant memory in our rear view mirror, and we will still be doing provenance research on our collection. Um, so we're committed to doing that work. Um, it costs money, you know, so we we're investing some of our own funds in that. And, you know, the university is supporting it. We're working with international programs, um, and with private foundations like the Stanley Foundation to, to move this work forward. Um, but, you know, when we identify work in the collection that has been looted, then we face a different set of challenges. So, um, you know, we have uh, a few objects from the Kingdom of Benin. We know those works were looted um, because, you know, they are um, portions of the uh, bronze relief sculpture that... Um, used to be part of the walls of the royal palace in um, Benin City in what's now Nigeria. And in 1897, the British uh, raided the, the city and um, burned the palace and stole all the art. And so, you know, we have four little fragments. Uh, we're holding it in the same way that we would hold works of art that are on loan to us. We know that they belong to the royal court of Benin. There is um, a group called the Benin Dialogue Group that is a coalition of museum professionals in Africa and in Europe. Um, there are representatives from the Royal Court of Benin and from the government of Nigeria, and they're trying to reassemble. You know, there's a beautiful museum that's being built in Benin City, and it will open right around the same time as the Stanley Museum opens, and it will house these um, reclaimed treasures. 
But right now, that group is really concerned with the big treasure houses in Europe, you know, these colonial show places like the British Museum. They're not even talking to American museums, not little museums like ours. I mean, not that the Stanley Museum is not amazing, but we are a small museum compared to um, these big museums in Europe. Um, and, you know, we've got four little fragments. So they'll get to us. And, you know, I think right now our job is to say we have it, you know, we're holding it, we're taking good care of it. And we're, we are um, using it as an opportunity, opportunity to learn and to teach about the history of colonialism. Um, but we have to find those works. And so this is going to be a long process, but it's a process that, again, we can use to learn and teach. And it's, it's really wonderful that we're part of a Research One university, that we have students here that can be part of this process. So, you know, I'm hoping that this process opens up uh, new avenues for research and teaching and learning, um, as well as justice. So that that's um, you know what we're doing with the the uh, the legacy of colonialism in our institution. Um, you know we're we're beginning a, a process that's going to be ongoing for a long, long time, and I hope really never ends. Your, the second part of your question was about how we make all kinds of people feel welcome in the museum. You know, we, we were founded in uh, 1969. So, um, but, you know, we're, we're part of uh, this legacy of museum building that was really um, designed to serve elite white audiences. And that, that history of museums haunts us because it has made people who, um, I mean, look at, look at old museum buildings that were cr created uh, during that period that I'm discussing, you know, between 1865 and maybe 1920. It's like entering a fortress in many cases, right? You have these, you know, giant sets of stairs that you have to navigate to get into the front doors. You know, they're, they're not, and it's incredibly intimidating to cross that threshold. Architecturally, it's incredibly intimidating. And that was very intentional. You know, those museums were built to keep people out as much as they were built to welcome people in. Thank goodness, you know, we don't have to deal with that kind of legacy of architecture. You know, we, we are building a museum in this moment and the architects who designed our new museum were thinking about making it as welcoming as possible from the get-go. So at least we, the architecture is on our side, but um, and it's a beautiful building that I think will be very easy to enter um, physically. But we still have that legacy of um, you know all kinds of people being told to stay out of these spaces in the history of art museums in the United States. Um, you know, so we we are we have to overcome that, and that means not just saying, well, you know, we're free and open to the public. It's up to you to get here. It means creating bridges that really bring people into our space, bring people into, you know, our spaces of power, our board, our staff. Um, and, you know, th those have to become more diverse spaces uh, and more diverse groups. Um, that's the big key. The big key, you know, the museum field is overwhelmingly white. Um, art history is... Uh, is a subject that's you know that is has been pursued historically by elite white people you know who didn't necessarily need to make a lot of money because they had family money but um, but you know so so we need to we need to make it possible for a more diverse group of people to work in museums 
And and that means really um, being willing to change how we do things, being really willing to change how staffs are organized. And when opportunity came came along, I was like, great, you know, um, this is a museum that really needs to be rebuilt. And um, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to rebuild a museum, not just physically, but to really think about how the whole concept of an art museum could be rebuilt. We're grateful to have you in this community. We're really happy and inspired by both your strategic and compassionate leadership and just so excited for everything that's going to happen with this Stanley and therefore happen with the university and the surrounding community um, as we move from what you have deemed the temporary pandemic (laughs) into bigger challenges and opportunities for the world and our community. So thank you for, for just spending a minute with us and, and talking about the future of art museums and in many ways the future of communities thank you thanks so much for having me T.J. Ditto Norris, rap name Mika Jean, formerly known as Tamika Janine Norris, is a multi-multidisciplinary artist and thinker. Using mediums like painting, music, video, performance, installations, they explore topics like racial identity, embodiment, exploitation, and consciousness. T.J. studied at the UCLA School of the Arts, going on to earn their Master of Fine Art at Yale and is now an associate professor at the University of Iowa. TJ, thank you so much for uh, taking some time to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. So currently you are working on an exhibition that will be hosted by the Figgy Museum in Davenport later this year into next year. Can you briefly talk about what you're looking to explore with this exhibition? Sure. So the title of the show is T.J. Dido Norris Presents the Estate of Tamika Janine Norris. And it's sort of a proposition of showing all of the works made by the artist Tamika Janine Norris, who is also like a, it's a part of the housing of all the sort of personas, people, mm-hmm. and entities that I sort of operate under as an artist, a, a vocal performer, a professor, an academic all that stuff. So it's almost like a retrospective, like a a show of works over about a 15 year time span from like 2005 works post Hurricane Katrina through, I'd say maybe roughly 2020 ish. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's also thinking about what it means to leave a legacy, what it means to be an artist and create a legacy. How does that legacy come about? Like, what does it mean to be an artist and also figure out how to keep these things that I somehow have deemed as important in some sort of a rotation in the context of our history? I'm actually super interested in your... Uh, philosophies about like having different personas. (laughs) I guess I Mm -hmm. I feel like you've talked about it as sort of manifesting what you want to be or how you want to be framed, but you also often talk about Mm -hmm. fluidity in your life and work. Can Mm -hmm. you expand on Mm -hmm. how you use fluidity as a radical means of 
of navigating your art and your life? Sure, sure. So I think a really, uh, a re very recent example was um, a couple days ago, I had someone come here to give me a quote for some custom blinds for my house because my window, I have beautiful mm -hmm. windows, but I'm kind of like on, I'm kind of on stage at my house, not, <laughs> sure. not a good look. So I'm looking into getting some blinds. And when the gentleman came, he just wasn't sure what, who, like what to expect. So TJ Didonoris is sort of, it's an abbreviation of what was my birth name, but also adding on my mom's maiden name, Dido, which is my family's French Creole history. And so I think he thought I was going to be mm -hmm. a man. And then he finally alluded that, you know, he, he was initially when he was kind of fumbling for a few minutes, not quite sure what, like who I was or what, what we were waiting for. He realized, okay, like that's me. This is the thing. So, and he and I had like a really interesting conversation about even that. And he was saying that, you know, his wife is also an academic and just, you know, what it means to show up in your body in spaces and be treated away because you're a woman or be treated away because you're short mm -hmm. or be treated away because you're a person of color or a black identified person or, or black politicized person. So I think this idea of like, how does one transcend? And I guess another way to think about it is like um, W.E.B. Du Bois's double consciousness, like uh, always understanding, but really now thinking it's like a multi-consciousness, like having to be aware of how I'm viewed by several lenses by others mm. by like the predominant culture right so like so what does that mean as an artist in the art world do I always want to be framed under a particular lens or only be curated into shows that are exploring certain subject matter and obviously there's like a really positive feedback loop which is like if you make it then you get to show it and then you get to be in a conversation mm -hmm. with people who are are amazing but also how can I, in the privacy of my own studio, like really dig deeper and not sort of wade in these sort of shallow waters of what the framework, what the framework of the art world has constructed for someone like myself, for example, what does it mean to be a Yale painter? What does it mean to be a black, a black Yale painter? Or, or performer or whatever. So just really w wanting to find space to relinquish those titles, constraints, identities, to just see what else is there, you know? So even do, so even like taking on a new persona, like uh, Tamika needed an advocate at times, right? Like if Tamika showed up and when Tamika showed up at, you know, the bank for the loan to buy the house, you know, what, what types of assumptions and things that have been proven and, you know, mm -hmm. researched about bias and, and names and class and race and et cetera. And so operating on paper as TJ sort of strips away a gender mm -hmm. and a sort of assumed race before someone has constructed a narrative of what they expect of me. Right it's also not just projected, it's also internalized, right? So what does it mean to grow up in my body yeah. and internalize images and figuring out where I am in the spectrum of all of that and trying it all on because we're all just trying on things. Mm -hmm. We're just shuffling through life, trying stuff on, trying to figure out. And, and some of those are mostly things that have been fed to us, right? And, and trying to venture beyond that feels really radical. Um, 
So what does it mean to show up at the bank feeling confident? I'm not worried. I have worked hard. I do have good credit. I shouldn't be treated with the bias because I've done all the things. I could just go down a whole rabbit hole thinking about constructions of identity and how we're all, you know, doing a form of performing, you know, like as we navigate uh, who we are on even on a daily basis from from your work environment to your home environment or how you are with a friend versus a lover or you know whatever right it's often something I don't I don't think about as much like in my life I com- compartmentalize when I'm doing art and when I'm being human but yeah the way that <laughs> you know this fluidity in your work is is not just in your work, it's it's translating in your life how you approach going to the bank, getting into it with this person who's doing your blinds, having those conversations there. You're not just doing this thinking and exploring and conversing in your studio and at the art gallery. This is you're living that right. I mean it's 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 yeah, it's it's the field research, right? It's it's the lived and embodied experience. And I, I feel like that's the one thing that we all have. We all have our embodied experience. Something else that's coming out of this exhibition at the Figgy is I'm actually working. So so legality is a big part of that work, whether it's like a, a legal name change or uh, creating, creating documents. Um, like I'm creating my first estate and will and testament, um, which is a kind of morbid thing to think about. I mean, maybe for, I mean, maybe not for everybody. It's like preparedness, mm-hmm. but it's like, whew, that's a, that's that's not easy stuff, at least for me. And um, what all of these times have made me think about, you know, like I, I know, just like you said, like living, like not knowing that we're living in a historical moment, right? Like in the future, we'll be like, oh yeah, that that time. But feeling like there's there've been so many moments like that like Hurricane Katrina or 9-11 or, you know, the 94 earthquake in Los Angeles, just these events that impact Mm -hmm. people. Yeah, we're we're all just sort of like navigating stuff. And I've just felt really compelled to make a plan. You know what I mean? I want to do the right thing on and legally protect the things that I've worked so hard to make. And I don't want a silly mistake, like not having a proper infrastructure, like a storage unit for the things or curators who are interested in the work that want to make sure it's placed somewhere by donation or whatever, you know, just feeling comforted in making a plan that the time that I spend here in this body, in this, in this, in these times, um, leaves a, leaves a tiny little print somewhere. Yeah. And, and I guess just like thinking of a will and that's what it's all going to come down to, right? Like you need to get your house in order one day and make sure that if you purchase things, whether it's a home or your assets or whatever, that those things are protected and taken care of. And it's such a grown up crazy thing to be thinking about, but that's just the reality that these times have really made me think about. Like, what does it mean to be in this country and for everybody not to have proper health care? You have to be so privileged to get some basic things that I think are rights that we should be born with. Yeah. Well, that's, that's super interesting that those are the ideas and the mediums for this like art exhibit again you know the the real life things like creating documents and 
legal stuff. And then using that as an art, thinking about it, framing it that way, that's super interesting. And I'm really excited to see your work at the Figgy Museum. I think it's October 24th now is the opening. And I think it closes on January 31st. And I believe that the closing of the exhibition will be a performance of my will being read. So yeah, so so it'll be a multi-channel film and installation showing several years of my life as a younger artist on through getting a tenure track job at the University of Iowa. It's like meta-narrative, counter-narrative, experimental film, multi-channel. There'll be a new EP from Mika Jean that's yes. the soundtrack to the film. Yeah, so I think it's self-titled Mika Jean, and it's an eight-song LP, actually, and it's a visual album, so there's music videos to all oh. of the songs. Yeah, it's going to be really fun, and then ultimately there's going to be this sort of performed recitation of the will in the estate. So it'll be interesting. So there'll, there'll be more about that when that time comes, but I think that will be on January 31st. It might even be like a virtual opening. Oh we don't gosh. know with COVID. We don't. Seriously, why are we even putting dates on anything at this point? <laughs> right, right, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Color me there. <laughs> Color me there for all of it. TJ, yeah. thank you again for sharing your art with us. Thank you. We're, we're very lucky to have art artists as a, a mechanism for healing and exploration right now in these crazy, crazy times. So, Yeah, these some heavy times. But yeah, thank you again. All right. Thank you. Y'all take care. I appreciate it. Coming up next, we'll hear about Corey Kent's best show ever, and spoiler alert, it's got huge romance energy. We'll also hear a bit about how Pullman Diner and St. Birch Tavern are accommodating for the pandemic. But first, let's hear a word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by Phoebe Martin, realtor with Blank and McCune, the real estate company. Phoebe brings more than 10 years of experience in the housing industry, and with that comes her boundless energy and passion for serving buyers and sellers. Voted Little Village's most trusted realtor from Cedar Rapids to Iowa City for the last two years, she's here to support you and guide you through the real estate roadmap, whether you're buying or selling, and to make sure you feel confident and educated every step of the way. Whether you're searching for a condo, fixer-upper, or luxury home, Phoebe will bring top-notch skills to ensure you the best experience possible. Visit her online at phoebemartinrealtor.com or call 319-541-8695. Corey Kent is managing partner at Pullman Bar and Diner and St. Birch Tavern, which basically means he helps run the show for two of the most highly regarded restaurants in the heart of downtown Iowa City. All right, Corey, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. I have to start off by saying, um, in order to properly do my research uh, for this interview, I was forced to eat at St. Birch Tavern last night. I I had no choice but to indulge, and it was it was stunning. It was it was lovely. Your Sam Farrell and Eric Martin duo team on the host stand Tough to compete. those are some uh good peeps right there and uh obviously appreciate mm-hmm. you uh stopping into the restaurant research is incredibly important right right <laughs> and that's what i that's what i always say gotta do that's my right. research 
So can you just talk a little bit about Holman and St. Birch and what the inspo is behind uh, those two restaurants? Yeah, so Pullman's coming up on uh, January. we uh, six years old. So that was uh, the first one that we opened. And, you know, happy to be downtown. You know, at the time, six years ago, bustling and a lot of, just a lot of energy downtown. There's just a lot of good things happening. And, you know, obviously mm. the Engler Theater is down there. Film scene was is down there. There's just just felt like this hustle that was going on down there. We were just really excited to be a part of it and still are excited to be a part of it. And the inspiration for Pullman, you know, we just wanted this kind of classic feeling American diner with a little bit of a tw- our own twist on it. And, you know, mm-hmm. that space came available and it, the space lent itself to that. It was long and narrow and uh, we really wanted to put an open kitchen concept downtown so that everybody kind of see what was going on. And it's been great. And the community's really supported. We were high on culture in the restaurant. So the staff loves working there. And yeah, it's it's been a good run. And then a few years later, the owners of the Atlas approached us. So they'd had that store for almost 20 years. And mm. for St. Birch, they were kind of looking for you know, getting out of Atlas. So for us, we loved this concept of uh, a raw bar. We'd been to Chicago. We've been to places in the East Coast. And we we always try to create or come up with concepts of places that we enjoy eating at, that we love to go visit. And having a a, a spot with uh, fresh oysters. And, you know, we didn't necessarily call ourselves a seafood restaurant out of the gate. And I'm not sure we still are a seafood restaurant, but it's definitely a huge part of what we do at St. Mm-hmm. Birch and which makes us unique because there isn't a lot of seafood offerings. There's, you know, everybody has one or two dishes, but we obviously have multiple with the raw bar, but so it's been good. And St. Birch will be, we're coming up on our, we're two and a half years old. So it's been going for a little while now, but it's just been great to be, downtown with everything going on Mm, for sure eat and drink and hang out that is definitely yeah the the two go-tos right there that's right love that so obviously running a restaurant has been exponentially more difficult in the past few months can you touch on how you and your team have approached Closures, reopenings, adjusting, modifying to accommodate for the pandemic? You bet. Uh, Challenging uh, for sure. I think our group has always been good. And this is partially due to the style of business we're in. You have to be ready to change and evolve on the fly a lot. And that goes for just one service on a Friday night or everybody's on the patio and then a a storm front rolls in. You got to be ready to get everybody inside. So things in our world are ever changing and fast moving and you just got to be able to roll with it. So I think a little bit of that, you know, doesn't necessarily prepare you for what we're doing, but it helps you understand and, and communicate to your staff that, not everything's going to be teed up for you. You're going to have to evolve. We're going to have to change. Mm. We're going to have to pivot. And because what are the other options? There are no other options. So when you get word from either our local or state government that this is what's going to happen, 
okay, this is what's happening and we're going to have to roll with it and make the, the most of it. I think the challenging part was in this specific situation or one of the more challenging things was there's just, we're so used to planning and looking ahead and knowing what's coming. We know when a football game's happening, we need to prepare for that game. Mm-hmm. We know we're going to be busy, mm-hmm. things of that nature. But with this, you, we have no idea when it's going to be over. You have no idea when it's bad, when it's not bad. You didn't know how to communicate to your staff that everything's going to be fine, you know, because you don't know if it's going to be fine. Yeah, I mean, this is something that comes up a lot, but there is, it seems like there is a balance between, like, obviously the easiest way to protect the physical health of patrons, maybe physical health of staff, is to close and just stay closed. But on the other hand, there's the financial well-being of your staff and the business, the economic impact on the community that must just be a balancing act. How do you approach making those decisions? Yeah, a lot of communication with ownership, leaders of both restaurants. Here's what I kept telling both staffs. No matter what decision we make, something about that decision sucks. You know, there's... If we close the restaurants and don't open back up, then we know that our staff is on their own and they're safe and we can move forward that way. But on the other hand, we as a business, you know, we're still having to pay rent. We still have utilities to pay. We still have obligations to our landlords. And and so what I would do is compare it to them and, and say, hey, you guys have rent to pay and bills to pay. We have rent to pay, bills to pay. And it just, it's, it really stinks that we're forced to make this decision and it, it, it was tough. So I think for us, we wouldn't have done anything for anybody if they didn't feel comfortable doing it. And that's where that communication came in because we said, listen, we're going to mask up and we're going to put in multiple hand sanitizers. We're going to glove up. We're going to put all these protocols in. Yeah, and we're, we're going to rock it and do our best. Is everybody comfortable with that? And uh, if they weren't, they didn't come in, and that was okay. If they were comfortable, they came in, and we gave it a go. And I think since we've gone along this process, we've kept evolving and changing. I think people are, you know, you hate saying the new normal, but I don't know if you ever get used to it. It becomes more familiar, I guess. Mm-hmm. And now you're not surprised when you walk in a restaurant and see everybody masked up wearing gloves, where before it was kind of a, a shock to the system. So I think everybody, I guess, is coming to terms or getting slightly more comfortable with everything that's going on. Okay, well now, drum roll, best show ever. It's time, let's go. Right off the bat, Do it. how difficult was this question for you? Were there close contenders? Did this keep you up at night? <laughs> yeah, there was... There was two. There were two uh, concerts that really, you know, if we want to throw in, I think part of the question was maybe events and stuff. You know, the downtown block party is always a fun one. Mm, Uh, A lot going on. Uh, Obviously, good for the restaurants being downtown, but there's music going on. There's just things going on everywhere. A ton of, you know, 40,000 people downtown is awesome. So that was one. And then I did go to, I grew up in Southern Iowa, and so I'm a, I'm a country boy at heart, so I went to the uh, Kinnick Stadium with Blake Sheldon and Thomas Red. I went to that concert three or four years ago, so that was a lot of fun. Just to see 
and I had been to a football game in Kinnick, but just to see the venue in a different light with a concert going on yeah. outside was really cool. And, and it was a great performance and that was a lot of fun. But the reason I chose, and maybe you were going to ask me this question, but the reason that I chose Lake Street Dive, number one, Pullman has been a, a big part, uh, or I should say for Pullman, Mission Creek is a huge deal. When Mission Creek happens in downtown Iowa City, a lot of the artists, a lot of the people that come into town, they come in and support Pullman. We kind of have that vibe in the very beginning. And so we just kind of had this unwritten, unsolidified, great relationship with Mission Creek. So the energy and the vibes, I end up playing some music in the front window every year during Mission Creek, which we never do any other time. We really just embrace uh, that festival and everything going on. And so anyway, Lake Street Dive is playing. I'm on my technically second date ever with now my mother of my little boy, Lemley. And we, we are uh, expecting a second one here and in about uh, 15 weeks or so, 16 weeks. So we were on our second date and I had tickets to Lake Street Dive at the Ingler. And I asked her if she wanted to go and we went, we stopped at Joe's place and had a beer beforehand. And we went to the show and, and Andre, Mr. Perry hooked us up. So it was awesome. And so that's why that concert is so special because it was our you know our our first real date and kind of where we just started this relationship and it just kind of grew and, and went from there so that's why that one particular is so special oh it's a love story it is a love story that yes. might be our first one of those <laughs> yeah yeah it was mission creek to me was that's one of our biggest weeks of the entire year is when that festival goes on that whole weekend just the the vibe of downtown I, I really loved it loved having all the different things going on at different venues playing music and yeah and Pullman just really embraces that because we we really appreciate good music when when you're coming in and eating it's just kind of a fun bustling diner but yeah so that's we so love cool this that it's a hub too like for artists that come totally that's kind of the dream all the cool artists and musicians writers want to come into your restaurant and they do and they come in they come in often and uh you know and having the good relationship with the Englert and andre and then whenever anybody came in acts people that were going to do a book reading at prairie lights or whatever it was we were happy to Mm -hmm. host and and help those guys out because we appreciated the relationship and all the energy and the people that those places bring to downtown. We're just happy to be a part of it and facilitate any way we can. So, but yeah, that, that anytime there's things, festivals, things of that nature going on down the, um, obviously being located next to Prairie Lights doesn't hurt either. What an iconic spot. It's huge. Yeah. So, but yeah, we just embrace it and have fun with it. Well, tell, tell us about the the show a little bit. Lake sure. Street Dive is like kind of soulish, kind of rock. Yeah, they got a unique, they do. They got a really unique sound. I think they, and I think that's why I love them so much. They just bring an energy. There's just, when you hear, uh, when you hear them 
do their thing. There's number one, one of the members is from Iowa City. So, Bridget. yep, Bridget. So you have mm -hmm. this little extra, there's a little extra juice in the air when they come into town. <laughs> and just their music is just up. It's a little jazzy. It's a little soulish. It's just a little, you just want to snap your fingers and you just catch yourself getting into it. And, uh, and, I don't know. You just kind of get lost in it, you know? And, and again, I grew up in Southern Iowa and grew up with country music and I wouldn't call myself, you know, a, a music connoisseur or, uh, by any means, but mm -hmm. I gravitated towards it. It just made you feel good to be in there. Yeah. And then in a venue like Englert, it's intimate. It's, it's not tiny by any means, but it's a smaller intimate feeling and you're just all in this oh, yeah thing together with other people feeling this energy it was just a good vibe and uh you know cold beer in the hand while you're watching never hurts but and uh you know the future mother of your children right next to you was uh, a lot of good things a lot of good things going on right there butterflies <laughs> and i bet and i bet for them too i bet because they know it's bridges hometown they're probably giving a little extra when they're up there on stage you know they want to make sure uh, and I think they all stay at her parents' house when they're in town and they're all crashing together and, and, uh, you know, they want to give a little extra for her people too. So I think it's, uh, it's a good marriage for sure. Yeah. That's pure energy all the way. Well, Corey, thank you so much for sharing your best show ever with us for talking a little bit about the, the trials and tribulations of owning a restaurant or I mean, running a restaurant or two during the pandemic. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Keep up the good work. Well, I appreciate you having me and I was flattered to be invited and uh, thanks for enjoying the restaurant. So I really appreciate it. Our song of the week is Circus Came to Town from Iowa City duo Crystal City. Crystal City, a.k.a. Sam Drella and Dave Helmer, have been making music together for over a decade, with this album marking the first time the duo expanded into a full band, collaborating with local faves like Randall Davis, Dan Padley, and Dave Zolo. If this song doesn't add a little pep to your step, well then gosh dang, you better run it back and play it again. Their music can be found on all streaming platforms, but we highly recommend snatching up their albums or merch by going to crystalcitymusic.com. Here it is, Circus Came to Town by Crystal City.
This episode is supported in part by the Iowa Children's Museum. With reduced capacity, new hours, and some new guidelines that help protect everyone in the space, the museum is playing in a new way. But the learning and fun hasn't changed. Come take an imaginary trip to the moon. Create artistic masterpieces. Discover the science of skateboarding and explore the world around you. To learn more, go to theicm.org. Support for this podcast comes from Friends of the Inglert. To learn more, visit inglert.org friends. Ongoing support provided by the National Endowment for the Arts and the Iowa Arts Council, a division of the Iowa Department of Cultural Affairs. And by the United States Regional Arts Resilience Fund. Phase One is an initiative of Arts Midwest and its peer United States Regional Arts Organizations, made possible by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation.